the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 16, Fighting Demons. Susan hummed an old Aerosmith tune to herself as she gathered an armload of firewood from the ugly wood pile behind Sandy's house. The nicer, straighter logs were reserved for heating the home. The twisted, lopsided, and gnarly pieces were set aside for the outdoor burns. Susan was happy to volunteer for tending the outdoor fires. She laid her armload of wood beside the makeshift burner, a U-shaped stack of cinder blocks with a heavy metal grate across the top. The brown water in the pot was nearly boiled down enough to be transferred inside. Before she took the pot into the kitchen, she wanted to place a new pot full of tea-colored water on the grate and get it to boiling. The second pot sat below a large clay flower pot, itself atop two boards straddling yet more cinder blocks. The rainwater was done percolating through the wood ash in the flower pot into a stainless steel kettle below. Only damp, gray, clay-like ash remained in the flower pot. Hmm, a bit over four gallons, she muttered to herself. A little extra shouldn't matter. She cautiously peered into the pot over the fire, careful not to breathe in the caustic fumes. The previous four gallons had boiled down to a pint of molasses-brown liquid, bubbling at the bottom of the pot. She swapped the pots and poked several of her irregular logs into the fire. Before taking the pot inside, she paused to check on Paul's smoker. She took a deep breath of fresh air and squinted her eyes before opening the wooden door. Paul's homemade smokehouse resembled an outhouse constructed of reclaimed lumber. Smoke billowed out, surrounding her face. She reached her hand in to squeeze the jerky strips on the metal racks. Close, but still too soft, she muttered. Paul had butchered his oldest cow, Jezebel, a few days ago. She failed to breed for the past three years. Even though Paul seldom named his beef cattle to avoid any sentimentality come harvest time, Jezebel had earned her name by being ornery, stubborn, and ill-tempered. Since two of his other cows would calve soon, the limited pasture would be better used by the calves. Jezebel had become more of a food liability than an asset. With the butchering, Five Corners had a temporary surplus of meat. The challenge was to preserve as much as possible for later. They might not butcher again until late fall. Jezebel had also provided a sudden abundance of fat. Sandy rendered much of the fat into tallow. She planned to make tallow candles. The light wasn't as bright as wax candles, but wax candles had become nearly extinct after the winter. Tallow candles would be better than nothing. Sandy's other project was to make soap from the tallow. For that, she needed the potassium hydroxide leached out of the wood ashes. Boiling down the brown ash water created unhealthy caustic fumes, so it was best done outdoors. The backyard burns were fine with Susan. She liked the breeze and the sky. Here's the latest pot, Susan said as she maneuvered the pot through the doorway. She was careful not to let the sooty bottom and sides brush against anything. I think it's boiled down enough. Oh, good, said Sandy without turning around. I'll finish the boil down on the stove here. 
put yours into my smaller pot. Sandy pointed at a saucepan on the wood-fire cookstove. But, Sandy held up a cautioning finger, do it on the floor. I don't want any of that lye splashing on my other pans. It leaves permanent spots. Sandy stirred the pot of liquefied tallow to ensure that it was all melted. The stovetop was stacked with other pots and pans and molds in various stages of project completion. Susan set the saucepan on the ceramic tile floor and began slowly transferring the dark brown liquid. She looked toward the windows, trying to breathe the clear air. A wide baking pan slid off the clutter atop the stove. It hit the floor with a sharp bang right beside Susan. Susan looked up, startled. Her heart seemed to have stopped, and then raced. Her breathing had stopped. When she tried to breathe, there was no air in the room. She gasped. While she glanced around to see what made the sound, she noticed that her vision was going dark, starting at the edges and closing in. Susan could feel the change growing inside herself. No, not that, N not now. She tried to will her heart to slow down and the blackness to recede. Oh, that silly pan, said Sandy. I didn't need that until later. I should have... Did. Are you okay? Susan? Susan gasped for air like a fish on shore. The black tunnel grew smaller. She closed her eyes tight, hoping to erase the incoming tide of darkness. Her heart sank when she opened her eyes. The tide continued coming in. Half of her world was black, half survived in a circle in the center. She turned her head to try and see something recognizable in the disk of light that remained. Brown tile, white wood, stripes, nothing looked familiar. No, this can't be happening. I'm done with that. She needed to find air. She backed up, bumping into something. The little visible circle offered no clues for which way to go. She backed up until she hit a wall. Her heartbeats pounded in her ears. A wall. She was trapped. There was no air in the room. Her lungs labored to take in something, anything, but couldn't. Her face felt like it was on fire. Someone was talking in a foreign language. Pairs of eyes began to drift in from her peripheral vision. <gasps> the eyes. She froze in fear. They would find her. She moved the little disk of her vision left and right to avoid the eyes. But they followed her. They closed in. They would see her soon. Which way should she run? She padded along the wall. She bumped into something that fell over. She stumbled over whatever it was. Around the corner, she felt boards, a door frame. It was open. Susan rushed through the door and smacked into another wall. There was no air in the new room either. The eyes closed in. She had to run. Her fingers found the door frame, closed. She padded around to find the knob. Little white birds flew in swirls through her dark tunnel. Were they looking for her? Did they work for the eyes? She got the door open, ran, tripped, and fell onto the ground. Her hands broke her fall. Grass, cold air. She was outside. Why, why isn't there any air out here? The tunnel grew smaller. A mere dot of light was all that remained of her former world. The eyes began to settle in near the middle. They had seen her. Dead eyes. Staring eyes. Accusing eyes. No! Susan screamed. Get away from me! She swung her arms back and forth, trying to hit the eyes. 
they were always out of reach. She dared not step closer to them. They would grab her. You can't have me! I won't go! I won't! She remembered the revolver in her waistband. The eyes weren't going to take her without a fight. Get back! She shouted. Her voice began to crack as a sob stuck in her throat. You can't take me! Rage filled her. She would not be taken. No! She aimed as best she could in the dark at the biggest pair of eyes and squeezed the trigger. A loud crack startled her. For a moment, she felt suspended, as if in an out-of-body experience. She hung before a fork in her black tunnel. One fork led down to a bottomless pit of total darkness. Somehow, she knew it would be safer there. The eyes wouldn't be able to see her. The other fork was the source of the sound. She was curious. What was that loud sound? She didn't know why, but her disembodied self floated down the curious tunnel. A dot of light at the center of her vision grew larger. The eyes didn't like the light. They retreated to the dark edges. The circle grew large enough to make out objects. Grass, clapboards, Sandy, Paul. The two of them stood facing Susan, arms held out as if to catch an escaped chicken. Both stared with a look of shock on their faces. Paul had been looking at a hole in the side of the house. Susan? Sandy asked with wide-eyed worry. Susan looked down at her hands. She still held the revolver. The sulfurous smell of gun smoke still hung in the air. The realization flooded in on her. She shot at the eyes and almost shot Paul. Oh, my God, said Susan. What did I do? She began backing away. Oh, my God, I could have. Are you okay? asked Sandy. No, I am not okay, said Susan. I can't stay here. I'll hurt you. I, I have to go. Without thinking, she turned and ran away from the house, in no particular direction other than away. She ran across the cattle paddock, followed the board fence to the corner gap. It felt good to run, to put all her strength into making her legs move as fast as they could. Her mind was a swirl of half-thoughts. She would run faster than the eyes. She could have killed Sandy and Paul. Could she run faster than guilt? How could she face them any more? There was no place for her. At the end of the high pasture, the fence broke the running spell. Her chest heaved with deep, rapid breaths. Her heart pounded. Running up the high pasture had been hard work, but she didn't notice until she hit the fence. The break jogged her mind back into reality. Where was she running to? She had no destination. She couldn't return to Sandy's house, not after almost killing him. She was alone. The woods beyond the fence looked like as good a place as any to be lost. She ducked under the top board of the fence and walked into the woods with no sense of heading other than to keep moving up. When she neared the ridge, she had run out of up. Oh, now what? I, I should sit and collect my thoughts. Yes, yes, stop and think. She tried to sit on a smallish fallen oak, but couldn't remain motionless. Her legs insisted on movement. She paced. Where am I going? I have no place to go. Her predicament reminded her of that winter morning a few months earlier when Charon abandoned her. Then she was alone in an unfamiliar woods in the middle of winter. This time isn't as bad as back then she mused. She glanced up at the young green leaves. It's not winter. 
and I've done a lot since then. Well, you're not lost if you have a place to be, she said to herself. First order of business is to make a place. She surveyed the woods around her. The ground was definitely too sloped for an easy shelter. While she walked slowly back down the hillside, her eyes scanned back and forth for a patch of ground that was more or less level. The hill is a dumb place to look for flat ground, she scolded herself. Despite her pessimism, she found a small hollow between three oaks. The shallow bowl of ground was reasonably flat. Two of the oaks stood roughly six feet apart. A third stood ten feet in front of the other two. Susan rubbed her chin as she studied the ground. The spot was workable. She might find a better place somewhere else, but for today, it would do. Using her big knife, she hacked down an older sapling to become her shelter's ridgepole. She trimmed its length to fit snugly between the two oaks. Two forked saplings became the uprights to ensure her ridgepole's position. She gazed at her construction with her hands on her hips. It was a good start. It felt good to be building something. Walking back and forth along the hillside, she hacked down thin branches with leaves. She had hoped for pine branches, but the few pines that grew up on the hill were too old and tall. All of their limbs were out of reach. With her load of findings, she created rafters, hooked to the ridgepole. The leafy branches layered like a thatched roof. The lean-to's roof faced the uphill slope, so it would deflect cool night air that would flow downhill. Her front porch faced south and east, giving her the sunrise and light. Sitting Indian-style, she scooted back beneath her new roof and looked out at the forest. Hmm, well, not bad for a fixer-upper. I'll call this place Three Oaks. Well, you're not lost if you have a place to... Her voice trailed off. A sob welled up in her throat. Place or not, she was utterly alone and feeling very broken. She buried her face in her hands and let the floodgates fly open. Why did she always ruin things whenever it looked like her life was getting better? Was she really that inept at life? Was all this part of the movie curse because she kissed Martin on the cheek? <laughs> Martin, how could she ever go back to Cheshire? She was a danger to anyone around her. Why did the eyes come back? She thought she had buried those demons. She had convinced herself she was over all of that. She sobbed until her throat hurt and her shoulders ached. A coughing jag ended her crying session. Wiping her wet hands on her coat and snuffling deeply, she stood up. Well, I'm going to need a fire for tonight, she told herself. Better stop sniveling and get to work. Within twenty minutes she had gathered an armload of dry branches. They would be her kindling and starter fuel. A dead maple, perhaps four inches in diameter, caught her eye. Oh, you look like longer burn fuel, she told the tree. Despite being dead many years, half of the bark had fallen off, the little maple wasn't ready to fall over. She pushed it with all her strength and threw her shoulder into the tree, resulting in only a sore shoulder. The maple stood defiant. You need some persuading, she wagged her finger at the tree. Taking a section of dead branch, a bit thicker than a broom handle, she struck the ridge of her big knife, forcing the blade to chop into the tree trunk. Using her baton and knife, she chopped out chips. 
creating a notch in the tree. Is halfway through enough? she wondered. She squared up her feet like a linebacker, then hurled her other shoulder against the maple. It snapped flat to the ground. Susan went tumbling over the tree, landing face down in the leaf litter. She chuckled lightly as she spit leaf bits out of her mouth. Well, if you're going to do dumb stuff, better to do it while no one is watching. After dragging the persuaded maple back to Three Oaks, she realized she would need water. Cold and hunger could be staved off, but dehydration was not to be trifled with. She felt in her back pocket for her crude leather wallet. Inside was a folded plastic bag, a folded paper towel for a filter, and sections of old cotton clothesline for tinder. There's a stream down on the other side, she told the bag as she unfolded it. Let's get you filled up. In her right front pocket was the little bottle of water treatment tablets. She was glad that she had opted to save some of those for a more appropriate time. This was that time. She had no pot in which to boil her water. On her way down the far side of the hill, she heard thrashing around in the leaf litter. Taking slow steps, peering around the trees, she found the source. One gray squirrel chased another up trees, down trees, across the ground to other trees and back. A third squirrel ignored the chase. He sat on a mossy fallen tree, intently gnawing on something. Supper? Susan gently set her water bag on the ground and unhooked her throwing stick from her belt. She bent her arm behind her back and moved slowly around the big maple that she was hiding behind. At the slight rustle caused by her footsteps, the first two squirrels stopped their chase, glanced at Susan, and bounded away. The third squirrel continued to turn over and over in his paws the nut he was working on. She waited until the squirrel looked away from her to let her stick fly. The surprised rodent looked up just in time to jump up in an attempt to bound away. The stick caught him in the back legs. The impact sent the squirrel cartwheeling through the air. Susan ran toward it. The squirrel landed on its back, but quickly started to scramble away. It could only use its front paws, however. Its back legs trailed behind it, limp. Even with only half its legs functioning, the squirrel was making quick progress to a nearby oak. Oh, no, you don't, said Susan. She kicked the squirrel to one side just as it reached the tree. With Susan stomping to try and pin the squirrel's head and the squirrel zigging and zagging to evade her, she looked like a madwoman doing a victory dance after escaping the asylum. Eventually, her boot found its mark. With a crunch, the dance was finished. Whew! Susan blew out a deep sigh as she pushed her hair out of her face. You weren't easy. The smart ones ran off. The stupid ones stayed for supper. She lifted her prize by its tail and carried it down to the stream. Water splashed over the rocks, sparkling in the sun. A three-inch waterfall provided a handy spot to fill her water bag. She dropped in one of her treatment tablets. It would take a couple of hours to kill off any of the bad bugs that might have been living in the otherwise clear water. The running water of the stream seemed like a good place to clean her squirrel. She skinned it quickly. She held up the pelt, stretched between her hands. Huh, nice job, if I do say so myself. Not sure what I'll make out of you, but we'll get you stretched out to dry and think of something. Tall pines near the stream gave her another idea. Pine fries. 
She didn't have to subsist on squirrel meat alone. Cutting out some panels of bark would be straightforward enough, but what to cook the strips on? She had no cookware. Well, have to dry roast them, I guess. She paced up and down the stream, looking for a thin, flat rock that might serve as a dry griddle. Several candidates had the right shape, but they were wet. A wet stone would likely crack or shatter over her fire. No, the winning contestant had to be dry. Poking with a stick at the leaves and grasses along the edge of the stream, she found a workable rock. It was smaller than she wanted, but thin and flat. It would have to do. Two old white pines each gave up a square-foot patch of bark to Susan's big knife. She carried them under her arm, the naked pink squirrel clutched in her hand. Her other hand held the stout walking stick she had adopted. Back at Three Oaks, she dug a fire pit with her walking stick. She held her ferrocerium rod over a small pile of curly strips of birch bark and cotton fibers from her wallet. The back of her big knife created a shower of sparks from the ferro rod. Small dots of orange glowed in the cotton. She blew on them gently. A tiny flame sprang up. The birch bark hissed and crackled as it caught fire. Twigs laid atop the flames also crackled. Soon her little fire pit was alive with heat and light. While her rock griddle heated up, she pried the thin layer of white inner bark away from the thick outer bark. Using the brown bark as a cutting board, she sliced the white sheets into shoestring strips. Cutting across the grain made more chewable pine fries. Cutting along the grain, she discovered, made pine fries you could chew all night with no progress. With a batch of pine fries on the hot rock to dry roast, she turned her attention to her main course. She had no pots or pans, so decided to pig roast him over the coals. She whittled a maple sapling into a skewer and propped her pig over the coals. The tablet-treated water had its faint, disagreeable aftertaste, but she was thirsty enough to ignore it. Her first meal at Three Oaks was scant but satisfying, in a way. Pine fries and roasted squirrel were unlikely candidates for the title of comfort food, yet she found some comfort in them. They reminded her of surviving alone in the woods before she came to Five Corners. She leaned back, propped on her arms. Food, water, and shelter, she muttered to herself. Got the basics. Now if I could only have a life. The revolver dug into her back as she leaned back. She took it out and laid it on the leaves beside her. I don't know how I feel about you, she said to the gun. You saved my life, and yet you messed it all up. She looked between the trees at the edge of the upper pasture and her former home unseen beyond the grass. Oh, it's not your fault, she said to the gun. It was me. I've been ruining my life long before you came along. Susan sat up taller. She heard a voice. It was far away, but there should be no voices up in the high woods. Her hand found the revolver. Susan! It was Aaron's voice. She was coming up the pasture path. For a moment, Susan's heart felt lighter. Aaron was from the before times, like pine fries and squirrel meat. A guest would make Three Oaks feel like a home. She wanted very badly not to be alone. Susan's heart sank. She saw Paul walking behind Aaron. Oh, no, 
She glanced around as if looking for somewhere to hide. It was too late to run away. They would see her. She wanted to talk to Aaron, but Paul was the last person she wanted to face. There she is, said Aaron. Told you, she snarked to Paul. Aaron waved energetically. Hey, Susan, we brought you your things. Susan noticed that Paul carried a bundle in his arms. It was her drone blanket rolled around something else. She was a hopeless mixture of joy and dread. Hey, said Aaron, I told Uncle Paul you'd be up here. He didn't believe me. Nice little camp you've got here. Um, thanks, mumbled Susan. She stood up to face the music, but tried to avoid eye contact with Paul. It was foolish to pretend to be invisible. Look, uh, Paul, I'm really, really, really sorry about everything. I feel horrible. I never thought anything like that. I, I mean, I, I thought things were better, and... She hung her head. But they're not. It's okay, said Paul. Okay? How can it be okay? I shot at you. I could have killed you. You should be furious at me. Paul shook his head and shrugged. You missed. What? Susan blinked in confusion. She was braced for rage, condemnation, guilt. Why wasn't he yelling at her? Uncle Paul said you were just having one of your episodes again, said Aaron. He said that something bad happened to you in your past, and that sometimes something will trigger the memory and make you kind of go crazy, but that you can't help it. But he said that he understood and thought that you'd want to be by yourself for a while, so he said we should bring you up your things to make you more comfortable and, and to bring you some snacks that Aunt Sandy made. Aaron thrust out her arms to present a dish towel-wrapped bundle. Paul said all of that? Susan asked. She glanced at Paul skeptically. He only blinked. Well, uh, he didn't actually say all of those words, out loud-like. Aaron looked at Paul as if he was supposed to bail her out. He merely raised one eyebrow as he looked back at her. I was kind of guessing stuff, and sometimes he nodded. I see, said Susan. But looky here. Aaron unwrapped the dish towel. Scones! Aunt Sandy made a batch of them in the oven while she was making soap. And some jerky, too, because Uncle Paul says you like jerky. Susan smiled and took the bundle. Bread and beef were terrific housewarming gifts. And Uncle Paul has your camel blanket thing, and your sleeping bag, and your rifle, and backpack, and some other stuff. He said, well, okay, okay, he didn't actually use talking words, but he wanted you to be okay up here while you made the crazy go away. The realization that her brokenness was a danger to others made Susan squirm. Would she ever be able to make her crazy go away? She thought she already had, but she was wrong. Would she ever be able to return to Five Corners? Or any place? Would she ever be able to go inside of houses without freaking out? The three of them stood silently for several long minutes. Well, I guess we'd better be going, huh? said Aaron. She and Paul turned to go. Um, wait, said Susan. She faced Paul, but still couldn't look him in the eye. Could uh, Aaron stay for a bit to, I don't know, chat or something? Paul looked at Aaron. Her face erupted into a huge smile. Paul made his way back to the pasture fence alone. Aaron sat near the fire. 
She added more thin branches and poked at the coals to get fresh flames. I, I was kind of hoping I could visit longer. Let's eat one of Aunt Sandy's scones. Erin helped herself to the open dish towel. You knew I'd be up here? Susan asked. She took a scone, too. Of course, said Erin, with her mouth full. You always liked it up here, because you could see your mountain? Well, to be honest, I didn't think of that. I just ran. I ended up here. Susan deflated with a long sigh. I don't want to be a danger to anyone, but I am. So, Aaron hedged cautiously, what happened to you uh, back before, uh, if you don't mind my asking, uh, that caused the crazy? Maybe it would help to talk about it. Uh, you know, get it out in the open, clear the air. Uh, that's what they used to do on those TV shows. Susan hung her head and fiddled with her half of scone. She hadn't told anyone before. Others, like Owen, knew what happened, but she had never actually told anyone out loud. Maybe it would help to talk about it. Thinking about those events made her shoulders tense. She forced herself to blurt out something quickly before her mind could edit. A big guy had me trapped in an abandoned house. He had a huge knife and pushed me onto a bed. Aaron's eyes were wide. Her mouth hung open a little. Susan could tell that her confession was grittier than Aaron expected. I thought I was going to be... Susan hedged her words. Even in the cruder, grid-down world, talk of rape was not something for a young girl's ears. I was sure I was going to die, Susan said, but I shot him and killed him. You did? Crumbs fell out of Aaron's open mouth. Susan nodded. I shot and killed the big man's partner, too. He looked at me as he died. The big man was already dead, but his eyes stayed open. He stared at me with those dead eyes. I can't seem to forget those eyes. Whoa, whispered Aaron. You killed two men? She looked at Susan with a mixture of admiration and apprehension. Well, three, if you count that barren person, Susan added matter-of-factly. Technically, her jar of olives had killed him, but that was a nuance. She wanted to kill him. Oh, yeah, him. Huh. That was scary. Susan continued without looking up. Every now and then, their eyes come back and haunt me. It just takes over. I don't know how to explain it. Bottom line is that when the eyes come after me, I don't know what I'm doing. I thought I had it under control, but obviously I don't. I bet spending time up here, looking at your mountain, and thinking about your true love will help. Aaron smiled, hopefully. That's got to help, right? Susan shook her head. I don't know if I can be anywhere anymore. Sure you can. You can get back to your home. You'll see. Martin will welcome you with open arms, and he'll be there for you, especially if the eyes come back. That's how true love works. You'll see. Erin nodded to validate her own advice. Susan shook her head. She didn't expect insightful life advice from a 14-year-old. Yet... Talking with Aaron was comforting. Things felt less lonely. Is Aaron like my emotional support animal? She wondered. I don't know, Susan said. She decided to keep talking. It felt better to talk. 
I mean, at first, I thought I was only infatuated with Martin. I mean, it was a stressful time at the start of all this power failure stuff. I was lost and alone, and he, well, he rescued me. Yeah, yeah, just like Lord Hazelton rescued Lady Appleby from the pirates in Sea Cliffs of Desire. Um, I wouldn't know, but probably not. Real life isn't like in your novels, Aaron. Martin was faithfully married. Oh, yeah, Aaron sat back, crestfallen. A perfectly promising plot had collapsed in ruins. But somehow, that just made him more special to me, Susan admitted. None of the other guys I knew or dated were ever faithful. All that mattered to them was, Susan did a bit of self-editing, uh, getting their own way. It was like Martin respected me too much to be self-centered. He wouldn't take advantage of me. So you liked him because you couldn't have him? Aaron looked confused. No, I guess I didn't let myself think in terms of having or not having. It's more like I admired him for his restraint. I mean, I knew he liked me. You know when a boy likes you, right? Aaron smiled wide. Yeah, like Derek at school. He pretended to be mean to me, trying to punch me in the arm, but it was all just an act so he could touch me. <laughs> I could tell. Susan chuckled. And I knew Martin really liked me. If he had tried to kiss me, I wouldn't have resisted. I think he knew that, so it made him really awkward around me sometimes. It was kind of cute. He was also patient with me while I learned new things and kind to me without ever once asking for anything from me. He just seemed to care that I was okay. That sounds like Lord Hazelton. <laughs> well, if you say so. The truth is, sometimes I wasn't even sure what I felt. Was it just gratitude? Was I pining over forbidden fruit? Was he just a great friend? I couldn't decide. What probably ruined everything was when I kissed him. Ah, <gasps> you kissed him? Aaron said breathlessly. She scooted closer to Susan. How did that happen? Oh, you have to tell me. Did he kiss you back? You closed your eyes, right? Did you raise one leg behind you while you kissed? Aaron bounced with excitement. Oh, man, come on, come on. What happened? Nothing happened, Susan said flatly. It was more like a peck on the cheek. I could tell I startled him when I did it. Truth is, part of me was afraid I would never get back to Cheshire, and I just wanted him to know that I loved him. I knew it. Aaron did a little fist pump. With Chapter 16, the action has moved back to Vermont. Though, as you heard, things aren't going too well. Here at the homestead, this is a busy time of year. We have all of the apples and most of the tomatoes in, so it's that annual crunch time to get them all processed before they go bad. This week has been great for weather. So there's also the rush to get things done outside while it's nice out. It makes for rather long days. But harvest or not, there's still a story to tell, right? You monthly members out there can expect to see Chapter 8 of Book 6 posted very soon. Members have been getting previews of chapters of the next book in the Siege series, as well as other posts about story-related material and the goings-on here at the homestead. If you'd like to become a monthly member, check out my Buy Me a Coffee page or my Patreon page for details. Links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week.